Welcome to this month's episode of the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast, a podcast where we discuss topical issues related to the environment and health. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Our podcast is recorded all over Australia and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places they value. Karen, welcome back to the podcast. Hello. Yes, lovely to see and talk to you again. I'm quite excited about this week. I've been thinking about it a lot because we're talking about diet and its impact on the environment. We are. I'm particularly excited. Um, The other week I was watching in on one of the DEA After Hours webinar with Dr. Rosemary Stanton um, and the focus on that one was also kind of looking at global agriculture um, and its effects on global warming and talking a lot about diet and how diet influences our carbon emissions. Um, and it got me thinking a little bit about how my relationship with climate change changed my diet as well. Did you find anything like that? It's been really interesting because I would say since I've been involved in DEA, it's like a cyclical process where Every maybe year or so, I'm kind of reminded of the impact of diet on the environment and I learn a little bit more about it or I rethink about it. And so like getting ready for this podcast has remade me think about some of the things I'm doing. Mm. And like previously, I've kind of changed. I'm an omnivore. Mm -hmm. I've changed a little bit about the meat that I eat. So I try and avoid um, red meat and eat other types of meat and seafood. I try and eat like more mussels and squid and Mm, kind of mm. things that have less of an impact. But when I read that Lancet Eat report, I think it was that it said that actually 30% of your climate emissions related to food come from your discretionary intake. Yeah. And that made me feel like, oh, my gosh, I had not thought about that. And that is actually having a major impact because at the moment I have been eating Far too many discretionary things. <laughs> and what, and so, what, do you, what do you mean when you say discretionary? So discretionary things are, you know, in the food pyramid, how there's food that's actually not in the pyramid because <laughs> you don't need to eat it. Yep. <laughs> it's those things. They have really no nutritional value. Yeah. Um, so like chocolate and stuff. Basically, I think about it as like highly processed things that come out of plastic packaging. Yeah. Really resource intensive to create and not nutritious at all. (laughs) So that's my new challenge and I've lasted two days so far. Yep. (laughs) Good. What about you? Um, Yeah, I was thinking about it. I was probably when I first sort of realized that climate change was a real issue um, was quite a few years ago and around that time I feel like I had that initial shock of like oh god what are we doing to the planet um and at that point then I became a vegetarian which was interesting because I came at it from the sort of climate impact approach but then from becoming a vegetarian I became much more aware of like animal rights afterwards which was really interesting um and I have a mostly plant-based diet, but again, like you, occasionally I have a little bit of meat and occasionally a bit of seafood as well, Um, but very much um, climate change fear driven (laughs) 
initially. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, so interesting. I guess I probably felt the same way. Yeah. 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 Um, do you want to introduce who we are going to interview today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Michael Sheen. He's a GP in Newcastle and he's a member of the DEA Diet Planet Special Interest Group. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Very exciting to have you on. Well, I don't know about exciting. Oh, <laughs> pretty sort of average sort of doctor, but yeah, becoming more involved uh, with the health impacts uh, of our diet choices, not only on the patients we're seeing, but also on the planet. So it works works mm. both ways, and um, in Australia, it's you know we're seeing a lot of the um, flow and effects of uh, uh, that discretionary diet you were talking about. So two thirds of us now adults are overweight or obese. A quarter of children are overweight, um, and we're eating far too much meat. We're eating mm. a lot of junk, you know, and 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 all that feeds back on impacts on, on the planet, not just the climate, of course, but land use and water use. Uh, plastic waste, food miles, all the all the rest of it, really. So yeah, it's a, it's a it's a natural fit for medicine for, for doctors to get involved in this side of uh, economics and agriculture and so on. I think very relevant, so many spheres. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that's got that dual benefit. I remember learning about like promoting active transport to patients. You can say, you know, it's good for the planet, but good for your health. And then yeah. with my personal challenge about trying to avoid some of the discretionary <laughs> items, you realize, oh, if I try and do this for climate change reasons, I'm actually benefiting my health too. That's right. You can be very, very, very virtuous. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean um, but, you know, and you can, you can argue that food is, is everything, really. I was thinking of putting some notes together, you know, for, for this show and thinking, well, if it wasn't for food, we wouldn't be here. So really, um, if we didn't have food, our food is, constitutes almost 100% of our impact on the planet when you think about it. But, but um, the standard sort of breakdown says that food and food, uh, raising food and agriculture and livestock make up about 25% of the greenhouse gas emissions of, of, of our species. And it's up there with electricity and industry and transport and so on. I mean, a lot of that, you're never going to get it to zero, but um, there's a lot we can do to, to, to greatly reducing it, that's for sure. And a lot of it starts yeah. with diet. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I think like we know that there's lots of different impacts of diet on the environment, but carbon emissions is kind of useful at the moment because you can quantify it. So yep. like obviously, Kaya and I have already said we follow different dietary patterns, but um. If you were thinking about carbon emissions, what is the different impact of like the main diet patterns on carbon emissions? Yeah, well, that, that's right. I, I think it's almost just about everyone's uh, gotten to know these in, in some shape or form. So I think we all are aware that beef uh, is the main emitter. Uh, at twenty, okay. So a kilogram of your beef on your plate, that's an impact of about 25 kilograms of CO2 equivalent to get it there on your plate, you know, grow it and, and get it to your plate. Whereas uh, your average uh, kilo of tofu is about two kilos of um, CO2 to get it there. Lentils, a kilo of lentils is um, only 0.9 of a kilogram of CO2. So, and there's everything in between. A surprise for me was chocolate, which was uh, quite a high impact um, on, on, on water use in particular. But yeah, so, so you can stratify, you know, meats are generally up the top end of the greenhouse gas emitters with the ruminants like beef and lamb up the very top. 
kangaroo somewhere in the middle at about five kilograms per, per um, kilogram of um, kangaroo because it's not a ruminant and it's um, a very efficient converter of um, feed into into meat into protein. And then you've got your uh, eggs at one point two milk. Is, is quite low at one kilo. And, and the alternate milks that are available now, the soy milks and oat, oat milks are extremely, extremely efficient, very miserly with CO2 emissions and land use. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Does that include all, um, all alternative milks? Like what about almond milk? Almond milk uses a fair bit, is a bit more impactful. The greenhouse gas emissions of almond milk are fairly low, but the, milk, but the water impacts are huge. So to get a litre of almond milk, about 600 litres of water to produce that. And don't ah. forget, we don't have a big local almond milk industry in Australia, so most of that's imported, whereas our oat and soy milks are, um, are produced here. Uh, oat milk's about 48 litres per litre um, to get to your plate, and soy is 28, so very low. Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, but And compared to cow's milk, which is 600 to up to 1,000 a, a litres of uh, water per litre of milk. So I guess we're grading. We're talking about greenhouse gas emissions and water use as well. So if, yeah. if you if you if you draw back and look at the whole of agriculture on the planet, that's using something like seventy percent of all the fresh water on the planet. That, that's for human agriculture. So it's quite spectacular. Um, we're kind of, we're kind of talking about it a little bit here, sort of alluding to if we wanted to reduce our carbon emissions, we can choose different kinds of diets can you go a little bit into like what kind of diets to choose but other ways that we can um, change our eating patterns to reduce and limit co2 emissions yeah correct well without even going to any um, specific diets just following the recommended dietary guidelines of most most Mm. countries will will get you away from your 100 110 kilos of meat per person per year down to about yeah. 20, 25. So you've already yeah. reduced your greenhouse gas emissions from that by you know, 75% uh, mm. without even going on to a – that's just a healthy diet, you know, from, from your, your standard yeah. uh, health department. Yeah. And that's pretty consistent <laughs> around the world. If you want to go further down, well, well then, of course, you've got um, a selectitarian diet where you're okay with a bit of meat every now and again, but you've, you're predominantly shifting your plate towards veggies and and pulses and things like that, right down to um, to vegan, of course, which would be the lowest environmental impact diet we have. Yeah, I guess there's other ways as well, like trying to reduce the amount of waste we have. I thought it was really interesting um, in the webinar with Dr. Stanton, who she was talking about how a third of all food is wasted. Um, and it was interesting because I didn't think about that food waste then also produces methane, which is a greenhouse gas. Yeah, that's right. Something like, again, the, the standard um, figures on that are about a third of all food is wasted, just wasted. Mm. So in, in, in your um, you know, poorer countries where the transport lines aren't so efficient, um, a lot of it's just wasted because it, it doesn't even get to the shops. It's rotting on the, on, in the fields or getting stuck somewhere where the refrigeration's failed. But in, in, in the West, you know, in the wealthier G20 countries, it's more likely to be just, you know, a third of the food you buy just is thrown away, ends up in the bin. Yeah. And, yeah, you're right. If, if, it's, if it's not composted properly, it's, it degrades anaerobically and mm. uh, in landfill and produces methane. So, mm. And then, of course, an aspect, another aspect of waste, you could say, is those junk diets, which is a yeah. new phenomenon. I think Rosemary covered that. So since the 1950s, with the advent of food technologies and increasing wealth, we've just 
developed all these new sort of frankenfoods, uh, ultra-processed, <laughs> which your great-grandma would not have recognised uh, as food to the extent that uh, your average teenager is getting up to 40% of their energy required, you know, needs, their calorie needs from, from junk, so Coke and chocolate and mm. all that sort of stuff, chips. And we talked about waste with, um, you know, greenhouse gases and so on, but also the, the, the immense amount of plastic waste uh, and wrapping that, that's involved. So, for example, we're, you know, Coca-Cola is, uh, they produce something like a billion and a half bottles a day. Wow. Uh, both of their, you know, their drinks and their uh, soft drinks and their, and their water. Yeah, a, G, a GP I know um, told me that she would often say to her patients, when you go to the supermarket, shop the outside of the supermarket. Correct. Because if you think about it, it's like that's where all the fresh fruit and vegetables are, where there's, you know, protein and dairy mm. etc oh, Kai the other thing I thought about you know how we were talking about changing our diets yeah one thing that I've done this year that's actually been really effective because I'm really busy I really am obsessed with planning and I got this planning app and you can plan all your meals on an app yep. and you download your recipes and then it makes a grocery list for you ah. and so that means you can do it each week really quickly and when you go to the supermarket you only buy exactly what you need I think that's it, it's really interesting how um, I like the message that if you just follow healthy diet recommendations, you're going to do a lot to reduce your carbon emissions. Um, I think it's potentially similar as well if you tried to just eat food that didn't come in packaging. The figures I've, I've seen are something like 65% of all packaging is for food. So 65% wow. and it constitutes 70% of litter. And with the plastic bottles we were talking about, that's $400 billion plastic water bottles every year. I couldn't believe it, but wow. that's, that's the figures I've seen. Two million tonnes of plastic every year. From food packaging. Uh, yes. So, yeah, if you just, just figure, you know, the next thing, you'd, one of the good things you could do apart from reducing your red meat would be just to drink water out of the tap and not yeah. out of the yeah. bottle. It's very simple. Um, yeah, very simple. As a GP as well, how do you communicate to patients what a portion size should look like? Okay, um, at the university health service I work at, we have a, uh, a diet plate with a standard recommended serving on printed, printed on the plate, which we give out to patients or the people who need it the most. And that was developed by Professor Claire Collins here at University of Newcastle. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there's, there's other strategies, but not snacking is one simple one, you know, just to reduce the um, overall volume you eat. Going again, discussing the general recommended dietary guidelines, is you, is you now fill up half that plate with greens, like greens and salads and uh, nuts and seeds and stuff like that. Only a quarter of the plate should be um, starchy vegetables or you know potato or pasta or anything like that. Preferably um, whole grain based or whole meal, and the the rest of the that um, quarter of the plate that's where your protein is. So, yeah, that seems to be a pretty consistent recommendation to patients from health services around the world and is reflected in the Eat Lancet um, guidelines that came out a couple of years ago as well. Yeah, the pictures mm. in the, um, the Lancet report are beautiful. <laughs> okay. Do you have any other resources that you recommend for listeners they recommend or that they use with patients? Sure. Uh, well, once again, just going to the Australian Dietary Guidelines, um, the Royal Australian College of GPs also puts out some interesting um, resources for patients. Well, one of the widely you know, promoted diets now, both in the US and 
in Australia is the DASH diet, D-A-S-H, so dietary approach to stop hypertension. So oh. it again, it's something like what we were just talking about, a plate mostly filled with vegetables, uh, some lean protein from animal sources and a lot of protein from, from plants and nuts and seeds and, and pulses and then some whole, you know, whole, whole grain carbs and, uh, you know, wholemeal rice or wholemeal pasta or um, tubers, starchy tubers. So that automatically gives you a low, lower salt, lower fat diet. It's perfect for weight loss. It's perfect for people with diabetes, perfect for people who've had a heart attack. Great for, you know, it's just all round simple approach. I mean... We do have to watch out for, I think we have to be a bit careful the way we promote diets as GPs. We, we're not experts. It has been pointed out we, we should uh, you know, avoid creating uh, a sort of a huge hype around diet and promoting or exacerbating someone who's prone to an eating disorder, for example. Vegan diets, we talked about earlier, are awesome for the planet. But we have to be careful. And there was a study by the British Dietary Association a couple of years ago. As soon as you talk about vegan diets and, and or call it a vegan diet rather than a whole food, whole plant-based diet, it tends to put people off. So we have to be careful around that, even though it's, a, it's an yeah. awesome diet. So there's ways you can couch um, the changes in diet that patients need that, that, that work and, and ones that aren't so useful. I think that the pescatarian diet seems to be something that's becoming more and more popular. I know a lot of people that I meet and friends increasingly are having a, a pescatarian diet. If someone does eat seafood, what kind of ways can they reduce their environmental impact if they want to be conscious of it with the seafood? Yeah, um, well, eating local fish is good yeah. and low, low down the food chain. I think you mentioned um, mussels and squid, calamari. Yeah. Um, As opposed to like red emperor, yes, or or, or, or a tuna or swordfish, yeah. and not only yeah. are they, you know, those while those large fish are disappearing from the oceans, I mean, it's just uh, something we should be avoiding. I mean, there are also the health concerns about mercury and other yeah. long-acting, um, you know, PCBs and so on. But just ecologically speaking, we should be eating f much further down the food chain. Um, yeah. we, the uh, the majority. Um, well, I've got some figures on it. Uh, the average Australian eats 13 kilograms of fish and prawns a year, which totals to about 340,000 tons in Australia. Uh, yeah. A lot of that comes from aquaculture. Uh, about a th what is it, 100,000 tons, and the rest comes from um, wild catch. But the interesting point is, of all our catch that we catch. A huge amount of it is exported overseas. All the all the valuable stuff like lobster and abalone and prawn gets air freighted yeah. to places where they can pay mega bucks, and we're sort of left with the scraps. Um, that's a huge amount of fish, but that represents apparently it's only about one percent of global trade. So the, the trade in fish is enormous, as you've probably seen with you know a lot of good documentaries on on seafood recently. That the seas are emptying out. Um, so, yeah, I think your approach with eating right down, you know, the mussels, oysters, um, local school prawns and so on, that's a good one. But, um, yeah, we, we, while we're exporting a lot, like something like 230,000 tonnes of our catch, we import 300,000 tonnes. And that stuff comes from 
overseas where they're not so particular about their fishing a lot of the time, you know. They're not particular about how they catch their fish, the amount of bycatch, how they yeah. raise their prawns, um, what they put in the, the huge amounts of antibiotics, for example, that are put into prawn farms. That's after the <laughs> farms have, have been created out of mangroves that have been cleared from the coast. There's enormous amounts mm. of bycatch to feed the you know the offshore uh, the um, the fish that they're raising yeah it's also there's biosecurity hazards mm. too like well, there was a, there's an outbreak of I think it's called white spot in local prawns because they've imported fresh mm. prawns that presumably get finding their way into the food chain via bait maybe but so mm. yeah it, it's crazy so you've got a pl- planes flying out from Australia with our frozen lobster and abalone and you've got ships bringing in big you know, tons of uh, 300,000 tons of seafood. A lot of it's canned, you know, canned tuna and um, sardines and so on. So it's it's a crazy system that can only make sense, you know, sort of to an economist, I think. But, um, yeah, so so eat your fish but eat it lower down the, the food chain and be aware, you know, once you start importing an air, an air you know, an air-freighted fillet, a barramundi fillet or something, that's that's the same greenhouse gas impact as, as beef. And when we're, when we're talking to our patients, we've touched on a, a bit of this already, if we are trying to communicate the health benefits of having a, a lower environmental impact diet, what, kind, what does that conversation look like? Well, um, we've all, almost covered that with the DASH diet. Once you start eating down the food chain, when you, you know, you're forgoing all those huge amounts of meat that we used to think were so essential, already you're, you're looking good, you're more likely to lose weight. Um, you're going to be eating less processed meat, which is, has got um, there's some suspicions that it uh, raises the incidence of bowel cancer, for example. Um, you're going to be your blood pressure is more likely to normalise. Uh, you know you're, you're going to get your micronutrients, but you know avoiding the extremes as well that we talked about. So I do worry about um, some people who really are passionate about their diets. It's some really restrictive diets where there's no meat or animal products. They need to be supplemented with with their B twelve or, or iron yep. and so on, but but in general, yeah, eating eating a healthier diet, a lower impact um, on the environment is good for health. Yeah, it's good for everyone. Good for, good for the planet as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, this whole area obviously it's quite it's quite challenging, especially if you're new to it. What are some of the tools that are out there for people to kind of if they are actively thinking about trying to find things with lower climate emissions or like trying to find more sustainable seafood what are some ways that they can try and do that do you know if there's any particular resources or apps or things like that that they can use there, there probably are guys but I, I i haven't got them at my fingertips you could look at if you were talking about fish I, I guess you could look at the greenpeace websites or the world wildlife fund websites for that and they'll have a lot of information on the greenhouse gas impacts and the water impacts of the food you eat Maybe we can get our listeners to comment on the podcast where they listen if they have good recommendations. Just in terms of DEA, the listeners can go to the DEA um, Diet and Agriculture f- uh, Fact Sheet. We also have a position statement and uh, we also have a little handout for patients. So you could start there. But, yeah, uh, there's enormous amount of um, information I, I know that's, that's readily available through the major environmental, you know, the environment groups. Um, so yeah, I, I'd probably start there. I hope one day too, it's just so much easier. Like you go to the supermarket and you can look at your food packaging and it can tell you where it's from, how it's farmed, what the climate 
or environmental impacts are that would be that would make life so much easier i read somewhere they tried doing that in one of the big supermarket chains in tesco's uh, tesco's in the uk and they had something like a hundred thousand food items they had to do to do that on so i think they got to about after about two years they gave up and they were finding right. and they were finding it wasn't making a huge amount of difference uh mm. to that point but i I agree. I, I think that would be extremely helpful. Um, but unfortunately, we don't seem to have even got to the point where we can effectively label sugar content of, of, of food. You know? That's true. Or, 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 or rein in the, the low-hanging fruit, like you know, putting a tax on sugar-sweetened drinks. So Australia yeah. sort of balked, seems to have balked at that very simple, effective move. So a bit frustrating. Embodied energy and land use would be really useful if, if we could ever... If we could ever get to that point, yes, I agree. Do you are you aware of anything that the food or the agriculture industry is doing to try and become more sustainable? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, look, they're they're seeing the trends in. You know, look, I haven't got any inside information, but from what you can see, that they're seeing the trends to a reduced red meat consumption. So the the peak body in Australia for for beef and 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 livestock is the Meat and Livestock Association, and they have now. Put out, you know, a policy of going carbon neutral by 2030. So I'm, mm. not, I'm not sure how they'll do that. <laughs> Ambitious, of, yeah, I like it. <laughs> a, a lot of it will will depend on government policy settings. Um, a, a carbon price would be fantastic for a start, but but they're also looking at um, assessing carbon content of farms and getting and getting to pay farmers as stewards of the land and and sequestering carbon and so on. So, but look, they're thinking about it. Um, the National Farmers Federation is um, supports net zero by twenty fifty, and is uh, a keenly you know keenly interested in these new approaches to farming where you're not ripping you know ripping the ground covers off the soil every year, where you're not yeah. overgrazing, where you, where you're not clearing along your streams because that that means more money for their farmers. You know, um, it means Absolutely. less. Yeah, it means less less supplied pesticides and fertilisers and so on, uh, and, it lead, and their profit margin goes up. So they're, they're very interested in that, um, but it, again, depends on legislation. Uh, they want to go net zero by 2050, but we know we now need to go net zero by at least 2040. But they're looking at new technology to reduce their use of sprays and, and, and so on, so precision farming and using drones and computer yeah. sensors and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And there's some uh, there's some guys that are that are really out there. Uh, Soils for Life is prioritizing is realizing how what a priority the soil health is. So everything's built on soil ultimately on the land, isn't it? So if you lose mm. your soil, basically you lose you lose your food you know, production. So they've got a what's it? They've got a national soil strategy. They've got just had a grant in the recent budget from Frydenberg. Uh, $200 million for soil health projects nationally. So $200 mm. million bucks, that's good. Although the recent gas peaking plant in Curry is going to cost $600 million. So, But um, there you mm. go. So so people are starting to talk about it on the land. Yeah, there was a fantastic documentary just on soil. Um, I think it was called Kiss the Ground. Did anyone see that? I thought I watched one called Dirt. <laughs> <laughs> Aptly named. Yeah. But yeah, dirt, dirt is really something, you know. It's uh, people are discovering the magic in soil and the, the microbiome 
At the same time, we're discovering the microbiome in our own bodies. We're discovering the yeah. microbiome in the soil and the, just the infinite, almost infinite number of species that we rely on without realising it. Mm. Which is good because we can bring this all back together. So if you limit your food waste and then with your food waste compost it, then you can then improve your soil health yes, at home. Closing the loop, exactly right. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Because at the moment we, we're actually using resources I think I can't remember the exact figures, but I think to produce a calorie of food these days, we're using something like six or seven fossil fuel calories. So obviously that can't continue. So once you you start using, you know, working with the soil and biology, you know, that hopefully will leave that behind. That that's that'll be the dark ages. We, but we have to get there pretty quick. I mean, other other things on the horizon. Uh, I mean, there's a lot there, isn't there? There's um, growing food in the, in the city makes a lot of sense. That that's happening overseas. I think in China, New York, mm -hmm. um, Chicago, places like that. Often where there's a, you know the inner city's been hollowed out. It's an enormous. It's a beautiful um, project for, for for local people who may not have much work going or no work. Or they're really taking up growing food locally in their cities because when you you think about it, that's where a lot of the waste is being generated and that's where a lot of the consumption is. So you've got your uh, cafes becoming involved and waste is being collected, compost is being collected mm -hmm. and recycled. So, But in Newcastle, we do have a couple of schemes. One's the Lake Macquarie Council just south of here that is encouraging composting from food waste or garden waste, sorry. And there is a... Um, local private group called Feedback that takes waste food from participating uh, food outlets and put, turns it back into compost on mm. spare blocks of land in, in, in the city. Yeah, so, so those sort of projects um, ramped up and scaled up were just extremely useful and um, just make so much sense, yeah. Yeah, it's exciting the amount of composting that's starting to happen now. I was... Um studying with a friend at the University of Sunshine Coast campus today and everywhere all their bins they have recycling waste and compost and they do all their own composting at the university and my friend was saying apparently during COVID um, it changed the balance of like the wet and the dry that was going into the compost um, and so then they approached bigger market groups like Coles or Woolies asking for their waste as well to compost it compost it which is so fantastic imagine if coles and woolies did composting yeah yes. yeah that's that's, uh, <laughs> that's wonderful wow that's, that's mm. awesome i wonder if they're doing that here I, i've got no idea but it just makes so much yeah. sense i think we've covered some really great points is there anything else exciting on the horizon that you're aware of or that you're particularly looking forward to only stuff that I've read about, but um, a guy called Paul Hawken put out a book called Drawdown. He lists a whole lot of um, technologies that can be scaled up to use farming as, instead of being a net carbon emitter, which is used at the moment, agriculture and food production can be used as a net carbon sink. So once you improve you know, your soil, quality of your soil, and your soil uh, carbon sequestration, and you uh, rehabilitate lands that have, have degraded. So 40% of farmland is in the process of being degraded or already highly degraded. Uh, yeah. Once you tackle that, before even moving into the sea and deep sea aquaculture, growing um, varieties of kelp and so on, the really fast-growing algaes grow at about a metre a day and sequester enormous amounts of carbon and can be used as a, a feedstock for gelatin and all sorts of you know, cosmetics and fuels and chemicals. So there's enormous untapped um, resources there. So I think that's very exciting. 
particularly with methane, because methane is so powerful, it's 80 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than, than carbon, but it's only lasts in the atmosphere for 10 to 15 years. So because mm -hmm. it's predominantly emitted by, from livestock, they're about 4% of um, global methane, something like that. Once we reduce the livestock production of livestock and consumption of livestock, those methane levels can drop quite quickly and mm -hmm. have a, a multiplier effect uh, uh, you know, in re um, reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions while we get ourselves sorted with the energy production side of things and coal and gas. And, That's and a good trans positive. Yeah, very much so. so. So a book by Paul Hawken you know, really inspired me. Fantastic. Maybe we should make this a new segment, Kaya. Book recommendations? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Big fan. Big fan. <laughs> oh, Michael, this has been a, great, a fantastic talk. Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful point to finish on. Is there anything else you would like to say or any final messages? Well, I think for my profession, I think we're profoundly ignorant of food um, and, mm. and its role in, in what we're talking about, health and, and societal well-being and, and planetary health. I think it, it's a very worthwhile objective in DEA to pr promote these ideas and get them out there. Um, raise the levels of awareness amongst our trade groups, our various, uh, you know, colleagues in, in, in and, it, and it would affect like any, everyone from dermatologists to obstetricians to the general practitioners, certainly uh, physicians, yeah. heart disease, you know, endocrinologists with their sort of tidal wave of diabetes they're dealing with. Yeah, it's a good good place That's to start. Point. And like with GPs, there's something like thirty thousand of us. We we each of, each of us will see something like you know we've each got about eight hundred patients, so we are seeing the whole of the Australian population maybe once a year at least. So enormous yeah. potential to to get those messages uh, much a much wider viewing. Awesome! Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for for having me. I look forward to meet. Well, I look forward to meeting you in person sometime, hopefully at a DEA conference. Yeah, awesome! Yeah. So, thanks so much. Thank you.